Welcome to Literary Anything, our Marion Libraries podcast where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. I'm Paula. I'm Andrea. And today we are talking about The Ninth Life of a Diamond Miner by Grace Tame. And sorry that we did say that this was the January book without realizing that we were all going on holiday. and We had holiday brain. <laughs> we, we weren't going to be around for January. So this is actually our February book. Yeah. And obviously massive trigger warning for the beginning of this. Grace Tame is a survivor of child sexual abuse. So we, I don't see how we can talk about this book without touching on that subject. That might be difficult for some people. So if you find that difficult, then you might want to skip towards the middle of this episode where we start talking about other things. So Andrea, do you want to tell us a bit about Grace Team? Yeah, sure. So Grace Tame, as I'm sure lots of listeners are aware, is the 2021 Australian of the Year. She was recognised primarily for her activism and advocacy on behalf of survivors of child sexual abuse. Primarily, she's focused on raising awareness of how grooming operates, but also her involvement in the Let Her Speak campaign. So for people who are unfamiliar with this, it refers to a clause in the Tasmanian Evidence Act, which meant that survivors of sexual assault could not be publicly identified. So this meant in practice that sexual assault survivors could not talk publicly about their experiences without applying for a legal exemption, which I think were only rarely granted and had mm. to be on the grounds of public interest. So, so was that just in the state of Tasmania? I think there was a similar law in the Northern Territory okay. as well. Yeah, right. so I think but not in other parts of Australia. I don't think so, no. I think it was just Tassie and the Northern Territory. Right. So this sort of meant that when while Tame's abuser could give interviews where he framed his abuse with of her as a kind of romantic relationship and Tame herself as a kind of sexually precocious teenager. Tame couldn't legally defend herself. Mm. She couldn't speak publicly about her experiences with this man. So Grace, alongside other activists and legal firms, set out to challenge this law, which was overturned in 2019. So since then, her focus has been primarily on raising awareness of how what grooming looks like Mm. and how it operates, rather than focusing on kind of extensive legal reforms or anything her idea is about the prevention of child abuse Mm. by looking at how abusers prey on children and being able to identify them so suffice to say grace herself as paula mentioned is a survivor of child sexual abuse she was groomed and sexually abused by her teenager when she was 15 despite there being opportunities where the school could have intervened prior to the abuse if they'd taken seriously the signs of grooming that were going on Mm -hmm. and appreciated just how vulnerable Grace was at the time. She was receiving treatment for eating disorders. She had undiagnosed neurodivergence and a kind of challenging home life at the time. So, yeah, yeah, an incredible incredible person and a really strong and kind of defiant young woman. Yeah. I feel like it's going to be really difficult to talk about this book. Do you feel like that? I felt like that when I first started reading it. But I think at the end of it, I feel more comfortable talking about it than okay. I expected to. Okay. Did yeah. you know all of that about Grace before we started reading this book? Yeah, I had sort okay. of followed a bit about the Let Her Speak campaign, mainly because I didn't realise that such a law had kind of existed. And mm. I can see what the intentions might have been. Yeah, but to yeah, try just, and protect yeah. the, the, the survivors. But yeah, mm. it just had these kind of un- perhaps unforeseen mm. results. Yeah. So yeah, I'd followed it a bit. I'd also followed her a bit with her kind of engagement with Scott Morrison, where mm. I thought she, in a very principled way, refused to 
sort of smile and be a cheerful Australian of the year when she was standing next to a man that has some not great attitudes towards, I would argue at least, not great attitudes towards women, sexual assault, sexual violence and feminism. And I really liked the way she refused to play along with him and thought she was was really admirable. Right. Part of why I wanted to read this book was because of that. Oh, cool. And because, <laughs> and because I felt like she seemed like she was often misunderstood yeah. um, by the public. Had you followed much of her story before reading the book? Not that much. I knew about the side eye, obviously, yeah. to Scott Morrison, and I understood why she did that. You know, there were people in my family who felt like she was a very rude little girl. And oh. So, yeah, <laughs> partly I wanted to read this book to have more knowledge about her so that mm. I could say, well, actually, there's a lot more to it than that. So I guess that leads us to, what did you think of the book? I have to say that I found it extremely frustrating. Mm-hmm. I really, really wanted to like it. I feel like all of what you've just said about Grace is really important. Her messages are really important. But I just found that the total lack of structure in this book, which is why I thought it'd be difficult to talk about, Mm. just really, really frustrated me. And things like, she goes into like really minute detail about like every single person in her family Mm. and her extended family, including all of her aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. And yet, when she talks about somebody like her first husband, for example, there's like a lot of detail lacking. And Mm. I don't understand, I'm not sure if that's because she's trying to protect him Mm. although I mean it's very easy to look up and find out that she's married to Spencer Breslin who is a an American actor and the brother of Abigail Breslin who was in Little Miss Sunshine and Spencer Breslin was in movies like The Cat in the Hat um so I found that really confusing yep and often I found her and I don't know if this is a result of her neurodivergence or neurodivergency that I found I had to go back and reread paragraphs over and over to try and pinpoint exactly what she was saying I I found that confusing yeah Mm. I had a really similar initial response I started reading it and I reckon 20 pages in I was thinking there's no way I'm gonna be able to finish (laughs) how can I be the library lady (laughs) it's like I couldn't finish it so yeah I also found so for people who are thinking about reading the book it's a really non-linear structure Mm. it's really different to what lots of memoirs by public figures might be like Mm. where you know they start at childhood, you go through adolescence, you move to adulthood and it, you know, progresses in a way that's pretty easy to follow. This is told in a very different way. There's no kind of linear structure really, or not one that's immediately obvious. So I think a type of structure you can kind of identify it when you're looking back at the end of the book. So Oh, please enlighten me because I could not figure it out. Well I so I was really frustrated by the lack of structure and I meant it meant it really hard to keep reading because it felt like you're just moving from an anecdote to an anecdote. Mm. And sometimes the anecdotes could be about, you know, her love of Robin Williams, for example, which is endearing, Mm. but also not super compelling. Mm. And I think my expectation when I picked up this book was that it would be perhaps more journalistic. It might be more of a book that gave us insight into her activism Mm. or her experiences being Australian of the year. And so I think I brought to this book a set of expectations that I was frustrated she wasn't meeting. Mm, And I think what I needed to kind of do, and I think about halfway through the book, it clicked for me that what she keeps telling you in the book over and over and over again is that 
she doesn't feel like she's ever been listened to on her own terms, that she doesn't feel like she's ever had the opportunity to tell her story the way she wants to tell it. And Mm. it's a story that she's still actively processing. Mm. It's a story that's really upsetting for her to talk about. And it's a story that she doesn't want to be defined by, but also kind of knows that she wants to address. So I think the book kind of makes sense through the prism of those contradictions. So I think lots of chapters actually start off with reminiscences about family members and people who've been important to her, the positive relationships in her life that have probably laid the basis of her own resilience and strength. So this can be frustrating at times. There's a barrage of names. Often they don't reappear. Mm. But what I sort of got from those sections is that I think they're a really kind of big effort on her behalf to not just be defined by the bad experiences she's had with a particular kind of man to show that there's been a lot of love in her life, Mm. that she's capable of a lot of love Mm. as well. And then she often kind of moves from them into an experience of adolescence that kind of leads up to the abuse. So I think she starts to, to kind of tell you, and each time she circles back to the abuse, you get slightly more information each time. So Mm. she kind of talks about how traumatic memories often don't feel linear. They don't feel chronological. Mm. There are details missing. There are gaps. It's one of the things that makes testifying difficult or engaging with the legal system difficult because the way you remember trauma, you know, traumatic memories is fragmentary. Mm. So I think the book structure starts to kind of replicate that. It's almost like a loop. You get closer and closer and closer to this traumatic event the further into the book you get. Mm. But it's like she can't tell you everything all at once. She sort of goes back and she reminisces about school friends or the the support that she's been offered by school friends when the case has first kind of broken. It's she first discloses in Tasmania. There's a newspaper report about it that interviews her abuser, but obviously she can't talk. And she calls up the journalist really distraught just to tell them that, like, there's an actual person at the centre of this who's a child mm. and the, friend, the support she gets from her friends. But then she'll circle back to something completely completely her love of tattooing or something completely kind of random and so I suppose there was part of me that started to think once I got the hang of that kind of structure Mm. I thought it felt easier to read and it felt like you kind of could understand what she was doing having said that I don't think it's necessarily a book for everyone I don't Mm. think it's like a big moral failing if you find that challenging and difficult to read Mm. but by the end of it I kind of really admired the fact that she'd written a book that feels completely authentic to her own voice Mm. that seems to really reflect the way she thinks and feels and that's kind of like an attempt to both reckon with what's happened to her Mm. but also to really define herself in a new way Um, that means that there are sometimes details that feel extraneous or something like that for the reader but I think feels like are important to her to show the range of relationships that have shaped her, that she's been shaped by a range of different people, not just this one experience. Yeah, and I appreciate that she does not want to be defined by that one experience and that, you know, she wanted to tell her own story. She didn't want to have a ghost writer. Mm. She wanted to be in complete control of her story. And I understand how after what she's been through, she would want to have complete control over the story or, or in her own biography. But I just found that I felt like there was like a lot of assumed knowledge. Mm, yeah, for sure. And yeah. so if somebody was coming at this book not knowing who Grace Tame is, is or a lot of what's happened to her in the media, I feel like they would be even more lost because yep. 
yeah, there was just so much assumed knowledge. And I felt, I think fundamentally my issue with this book was that it was simultaneously very detailed while also conversely lacking in key details yeah. <laughs> that would make it, you know, more understandable. Even the way you've just described the whole Let Her Speak campaign, I feel like I understand that better now from you just saying that than I did through this whole book. And I just feel like she had the opportunity to really explain all of that and her experience and why she would not smile when she was next to the prime minister. And I don't know that she really did that, for, especially for people whose politics might be different from hers. And also, I, I found an article from the Sydney Morning Herald where... It said that she wrote all 330 pages of a second draft in three months, sometimes working late into the night. She was writing right up until the book was scheduled to go to print, turning out the last pages even as I was reading the near to final draft in preparation for our interview. And to me, that's how it sounded. It sounded rushed and like a stream of consciousness work. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like... Again, I mean, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse should be able to tell her story in any way that she wants. But I just feel like it was perhaps an opportunity lost in that she could have benefited from working with somebody to just kind of hone her message, really make sure. Like, I want to know when you were like going up to receive the Australian of the Year award, like what was going on behind the scenes? What was going on in your head? And exactly why I mean she does it a little bit towards the end but I just feel like it's not quite enough explain it for the people who are you know her whose politics are different to yours so that we can have some empathy some sympathy for your situation and understand why exactly you're not smiling in in front of the in front of the prime minister so for those people who say oh she's just a rude little girl who's you know being arrogant yeah Yeah. (laughs) in in all this convoluted rambling about i feel like she's mentioned every person she's ever met in her life yeah like at at the beginning it was all her family members and at the in the latter half it was like every person she's ever you know yeah met Mm. and like you said all these random names that never come back again Mm. and i just think that her key messages which are so important got lost in all of that yeah I think that's I think a lot of that's really fair I think it definitely could have done with like a third draft Mm, and I reckon it could have done with either you know taking out some of that stuff about her you know the people she's met to maybe really focus on some of the key people or condensing Mm. it somehow Mm. because I do think the book ends up being really unwieldy it would have been good I too would have really liked there are sections where she talks about the way culture makes kind of apologies or for child sexual abusers. Mm. But she doesn't actually give really concrete details about what that looks like. And it's not because I don't believe her, but because I think in general people would say there are few crimes you could get more people on board with saying they disagree with than child sexual abuse, Mm. right? Like we all agree, but yet we know it's really prevalent in our culture. So what kind of ways, just because she's done so much thinking and so much research into what are the kind of insidious ways we make allowances or excuses for child sexual abuse? So we know there are some of the the really big ones, the way we allow particular kind of organisations in society to get away with things, but what are the more insidious ways that we do that? So I would have really loved to see that in that book as well. I sort of disagree. I sort of feel like she handled the stuff about Scott Morrison fairly well in the sense that, like, this is my line about it and I don't care what you think about me. Mm. So I sort of thought there was a bit of... 
I don't think she's trying to – if people think she's a silly little girl, I, I don't think she's trying to win those people over. I don't I think the book is aimed at them and I don't think she cares. And I don't think – which I think is probably fair enough that she wants to do something different with the book. But I think it's just that contradiction between what me as a reader wanted from the book mm. and what she as an author – wanted to do and I mm. think um we just wanted different things I suppose it sounds yeah. like a relationship like, <laughs> you know but I think there are things that I would have really liked to hear from her and I think there are little discrepancies in the story as well like she writes of a really idyllic childhood but yet we also know there's an unnamed woman in there who's really emotionally abusive and but we don't quite know what's what's going on and she writes of having you know really difficulties with attachment and we don't know if that's because her parents early separation and mm-hmm. or if there's something else that was going on goes on in her relationship with her parents so I think there are these little slippages where the truth might be a little bit more nitty-gritty or mm. a little bit more complex yeah I I've yeah I found that frustrating too like I feel with that woman I, my sense was to think that maybe it was her stepmother the, just that's the what I presumed as yeah. well and I sort of felt a little bit uncomfortable with that like I don't know if that's my fault as a reader or hers not. Like you start to wonder who is this woman who's very close to the centre of her life that's mm-hmm. treating her like this mm-hmm. and why isn't any of the amazing people who are around her doing anything? <laughs> like, yeah, because she says very glowing things about both her mother and her father yeah. and yet, yeah, I feel like I want to read this. This happened very early on and yeah, really started off my feeling of what is going on here. Mm. So she says... Maybe it's because I was psychologically abused by someone in my life from the age of two onwards. Bitch and cow were names I'd been called by the time I was six. The same person would stick her rude finger up at me in front of my father and tell me, you've got a pretty face, but it won't last. When I was only a child, all of this and there was so much more chipped away at my self-esteem. Yeah, and I think... There's also stuff about, you know, her being dropped off at school at like seven o'clock in the morning Mm. in tears and... You know, there's no real explanation. She seems to come from this massive, loving, interconnected family. Like, why was that happening? And, you know, so I think there are these gaps in the stories that yeah, I'm it, presuming they're just really painful. Well, I felt but, like perhaps she was trying to protect certain people. Mm. But I felt like either then I felt she should either leave it out yeah, or put it in. But she kind of did a little of both and it just was frustrating. Yeah, and I think there are little kind of examples of that right throughout Mm. the book of where you can kind of read between the lines that you're not getting a kind of full picture of what's going on or that the truth might be a little bit more complex, but just key details are kind of excluded. And I, I guess that that is part of, you know, she writes that she's still actively trying to understand her past and that Mm. she's working with counsellors and that, you know, occasionally counsellors would say something to her that seems incredibly obvious to them, mm. but she just didn't see it mm. or didn't kind of pick it up. And, and that's understandable. But even I found like even details that didn't have anything to do with the abuse. For example, she talks about this. She said she's deeply she was deeply in love with this man named Christian and only realized it after he died. But then she doesn't say how he died exactly, except for she starts saying, oh, Christian, you were on a train and you were running from the ticket man. And then just doesn't say anything more. Yeah. I don't understand why. Yeah, there are a whole section of when she goes traveling, like she's living in the States and she visits Europe and stuff for a while where, I mean, I think that's the stuff that really could have been either condensed or Mm. kind of 
cut back seriously by an editor because, like you say, there are these these characters kind of never pop back up in her life. Mm. We're just there kind of reading about her testifying to why they're really important to her. Mm. But it doesn't add much to the book. And there are these kind of just strange gaps. You can never quite understand what their relationships were. Yeah, so I agree. I found Mm. that kind of really frustrating. I don't want to take away, though, what you're saying about the book. Because I think there are things that she does well in it. Like, for example, she talks a little bit about why women with... So Grace Tame has autism spectrum disorder. And she talks about why women with neurodivergence are three times more likely Mm. to be the victim of child sexual abuse than than other children. She talks about how this kind of combined thing of like an unstable childhood and her neurodivergence, so a coping strategy for that, she writes, is kind of fawning and mimicking. Mm, So it's this desire to, to please, to be accepted. You're never quite sure how you're meant to respond to anything. You really want approval. You are really kind of... You don't really understand boundaries very because they're perhaps not mirrored at home or because some of the subtext to relationships and social situations are difficult to read. Mm. So she talks about how that makes her exceptionally vulnerable to this kind of older man that she really wants to to please and to like. He seems to understand her. In some ways he reminds her of her father who also seems to be, despite some of the things she says about him, a quite emotionally distant person. Mm. Um, so I think she does write quite well about how that kind of lays the basis for her vulnerability to this man or this man can identify that vulnerability in her and exploit it without her kind of understanding what's going on i found that chapter that she wrote about the grooming and the abuse the one that was most while harrowing and difficult to read because of the completely manipulative and horrible behavior of her teacher the the one that was the easiest to follow yeah and i wondered if maybe she spent more time on that chapter because that was the part that she really wanted to get right. I don't know or if it's just something that she has been trying to understand the dynamics of for mm. a long time. So she has a kind of clarity about that now that other parts of her life, maybe she doesn't quite have the same clarity yet. That would make sense because obviously she would have been working on this. Because yeah. she counselors. talks about as a child not having the language she has now, that this mm. language she has of, of grooming and assault is something that she's developed over time. And I think it's about kind of using that to try and understand and look back on what's happened to her mm-hmm. and understand it through that kind of prism. About Which would be so important because she was putting all, and, and other people, and mm. including her abuser, were put, was putting so much on her yeah. as a child of 14 yeah. years old. When it's really important for her to be able to paint this picture of exactly how he was targeting her, using her weaknesses, and slowly introducing more sexual aspects of her of into their relationship and using her naivety, you know, because she wouldn't realize what was happening. And then at this, when she was at this supremely weak point in her life, at where she needed somebody, her mom had just had a baby, so, you know, she wasn't obviously getting a lot of attention there, and as Andrea said, she was suffering from an eating disorder, that he targeted her at that weak moment and made her rely on him such that when she would have trouble at school, she would ask for him, and teachers, the other teachers would bring her to him. Yeah. Teachers yeah. who had seen that, you know, she was spending time in his office by herself, and her parents actually complained to the school and for a while you know twice they complained yeah yeah yeah. and he backed off made it seem like it was 
her fault. Yes. And she felt like she had done something horribly wrong. And she was questioning, you know, at the age of 14 or 15, if she was in love with him while simultaneously knowing that that, that couldn't be right. But yeah. he was able to make her think that. Yeah, the whole pitch. So her parents made two complaints about the inappropriateness of his relationship with her. And there was meetings with the school. And the framework for that was that she was an unwell teenager developing a kind of obsession with a teacher. Mm. Not that he had cultivated this relationship or anything like that. That doesn't seem to have been part of any of the meetings at all. Mm. The whole framework seems to be that she's unwell, she's unstable, and she's developed this kind of infatuation mm. with this man. And no one, no adult in the room seems to have countenanced the idea that she was being exploited by this man. And it's also, I guess, worth pointing out that these are skills that he'd honed. Mm. She's not the only child that he had sexually assaulted. I think there's at least five other people who've come forward. It's not even the only incident of sexual abuse at that school. Mm. Teachers have also been convicted for it. So I think this is also the thing of like, there's a culture of enabling abuse Mm -hmm. that I sort of wish she'd unpacked a little bit more. But, you know, she, like part of me is like, why... Why did the school respond this way? It seems maddening. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, they, was it I, was it ignorance or were they just turning a blind eye because it was too hard? It's so hard to know. Mm. Like, it seems to me. I mean, I'm go through life fairly vague at the best of times. <laughs> but like, even I would like, you know, sends alarm bells ringing. Like, how did people who, you know, are trained in various identification strategies and stuff like that let this slip but through? Maybe they weren't at this time. This is like 2015, something like that. It's mm. not. I think it, it was more in 2010, but yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, okay, I, I get okay. what you're saying. It's, it's, not, like it's not like 1984 <laughs> or something like that. Like, yeah. It's so reminiscent of My Dark Vanessa as well, the strategies that yeah. the teacher used. So you can see there's a, there's a pattern of behavior here yep. that Grace is rightly shining a light on because obviously, yep. yes, more people need to be able to recognize yeah. and not blame a child <laughs> For what an adult has cultivated. And I think she also points to the kind of intergen... The way sexism that can seem kind of like everyday sexism can also be compounded. So she talks a lot about the women in her life. So her mother has like four other sisters and they have a grandmother who seems like an incredibly resilient person. And so she kind of talks about their incidences of abuse or sexism in their family's Mm. history and the coping strategies of the women in her family. So, for example, her grandfather, her paternal grandfather, um, cheated repeatedly on the grandmother and they finally left after I think he'd gotten a teenage, a young teenager pregnant. He'd kind of locked her up in a house in a fairly rough part of Tassie for the last six months of her pregnancy, made her give birth in this house by herself. She eventually, with a three-month-old, I think, kind of left this house and just returned to her parents and it all kind of came out that his kind of treatment of her and eventually he kind of leaves the family home and he sort of takes up with this young woman. I think they have another child. I think their relationship kind of started when she was about 16 or 17 and he was an adult man who already had five or six children. But they talk about how this is like a clearly abusive relationship was kind of normalized within Mm. their family yeah that you know he'd come around for christmas they you know her grandmother would try and help out if there were childcare crises with this other his second family it's quite possible he has other children by other kind of young women young women the way he constantly undermined the self-confidence of his daughters his older daughters from his 
so Grace's mother and aunt, and the way the response to that from the daughters was a kind of people-pleasing, was a kind of mm. desperate desire to gain his approval. So she does kind of identify the way that kind of intergenerational thing, which in some ways for lots of families is a kind of normative thing, the yeah. idea of like seeking paternal approval or insecure care and, and stuff. Like these aren't you know, unusual strategies and the way we can sometimes fetishise the resilience of women mm. and sort of say, oh, you know, she's really tough, like, you know, she let him come to Christmas, she buried her feelings <laughs> for the good of the family and stuff mm. like that. Instead of saying, that's crap. Yeah. <laughs> she shouldn't have to do she that. She shouldn't have had to he do that. He shouldn't be behaving like that. It would have been fine for her to lose her temper. It would mm. have been fine for her to be angry about this. So I think she also kind of, you know, links that there's a... And that I don't know if possibly this is also a reason some of the stuff with this unnamed female mm. caregiver might have been overlooked as well. This can be an idea of like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger mm. and those sorts of ideas can also be part of the framework that makes her vulnerable. Mm. So she does talk about that as well fairly well, I mm-hmm. thought. Yeah, that's true. So <laughs> it's a kind of, yeah, There, I found that there are things that are really frustrating about this book. Mm. So I agree with you lots of that. I do think there are things it does well, but I just think it's not a book everyone mm-hmm. really and I, yeah that said the reviews on this are pretty glowing yeah yeah so that's good i mean i believe in grace tame and her foundation and the messages yeah. she's trying to get out there i think they're all really important not just about child sexual abuse but neurodivergence and all of those things yeah she writes a lot about um her neurodivergence yeah. and the impact that's had on her life yeah. as well yeah. yeah, all really important messages. I said it was going to be hard to talk about, but in the end, I guess we it wasn't right. that hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did all right. Yeah. <laughs> Any final thoughts? I feel like it's, I, I, I would never want to rate this book. I feel like it no, defies rating. Like a, but I think she writes in the book about wanting to continue writing. Yeah. So I think it'd be really interesting to see what she might write in another 10 years time. Once she's had another 10 years, I, I think she's committed to not writing about this again yeah but I think it'd be interesting to see where she is in another 10 years and what she's writing about yeah I hope she that is. she could maybe spend some more time with what she's writing I don't know if she felt under pressure it seemed like maybe yeah. she felt under pressure to get this out yep. and I would like her to have some more time to sit with her work yep. and you know give it some space and then maybe come back to it I saw her speak at Adelaide Writers Week and she was really sharp and witty and yeah. funny and compelling I think she's an amazing person and I would I would want to read more and she has a her. really strong voice. I mean, she really does. The thing in it. I know some people talk about having to find their voice, and that's like not her problem. Yeah, at all. Yeah. She's got, <laughs> she's her got so down. much personality and so much voice, and she sounds so kind of authentic. Like she just sounds absolutely by herself. Sometimes the jokes are really daggy. Sometimes yes. they're funny. Like she sounds utterly kind of herself. So I think yeah, like working with a good editor as mm-hmm. well, just to. And that doesn't necessarily mean that her work needs to be shaped into a more traditional structure or more linear structure or anything like that, but getting a sense that I suppose writing is also a form of communication and Mm. it's about a relation, you know, you're establishing a relationship with an author as well, uh, with a a reader as well. It's not just a brain dump. That's right. So I think working with an editor to find ways that feel like they still are kind of authentic to the way she wants to tell a story, to the way her memory works, mm. her, you know, all of those sorts of things and just making it like the strongest version of itself it could be. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I I felt alienated at points and I I was on her side. I didn't want to, you know... Yeah, she's really likeable. Yeah. She's but super likeable, <laughs> but frustrating as well sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, this is her first book, right? Yeah. So she's 27, 28 years yeah, old. Absolutely. I think it's fine that she didn't get it absolutely perfect the first time. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. And I think there's that kind of thing that I f- feel like she could, you know, rightly be sort of proud of this. It does kind of really establish her for strengths and weaknesses, but her like authoritative version of what she wants you to know about her. And I think that's that's good. That's admirable. So I think there's this thing she talks about you know, initially when she won Australian of the Year, feeling like she had to wear power suits. And That's right. if she didn't, people wouldn't like her or wouldn't take her seriously. And then eventually she kind of snaps out of it and she's like, I'll just wear what I like, I'll speak how I like. And I think the book is a kind of an extension of mm. that realisation that, like, you know, she is just going to be herself and she's going to do it her way. And, you know, there's... I think there's a lot that's kind of admirable about that. Too. The other thing she is that we haven't mentioned is a is a talented artist. Yeah. And she actually drew the cover for this book, which just, you know, amazing self-portraits with lots of animals and imagery around it that it's, yeah, it's just black and white line drawings, but yeah, amazing. Yeah, they're amazing really beautiful. Work. I didn't yeah. realise it was her first and then I felt like a dope. It's really, <laughs> it's really good. And I think she's done, like, I think that's one of the ways she supports herself is she does visual art, does yoga teaching. Yeah. Really, yeah, really, really good. Yeah, I kind of, she's, there are pictures in the middle of this book and one of the, some of the photos or maybe just one of them is of her artwork, an art bit, a work of art that she did for John Cleese that has to do with Monty Python. She's got a real Monty Python obsession. Yeah, she's obsessive. If you are into Monty Python, there are plenty of anecdotes <laughs> in here. That's her comfort watch. Yeah. yeah. But this drawing of The Last Supper that she did for John Cleese, I really wanted to be able to, like, I wanted it to be on an iPad so I could, like, yeah, <laughs> make it in. larger, zoom in and it's see. Because, yeah. I think that's one of the things she also does really well. Just one last kind of reflection. Mm. She does a really good job of showing you just how young she was when the abuse started. Yes. So there's one thing, that, or not one thing, but there's a recurring thing that comes up when she's speaking about her childhood friends. They're such children. <laughs> they have sleepovers. They, you know, and she loves school. That's another thing that comes through. She loves so many of her teachers. She loves art. She loves reading. She's really into PE and sports. She does a really good job of showing you how childlike she is because she was 14 because she's a kid (laughs) so I guess that's another thing that those reminiscences reminded me of and like I do remember when I was making notes and as I was reading this like this her sheer enthusiasm for so much her enthusiasm Mm. for school her Mm. enthusiasm for learning for her teachers you know so many of them she remembers by name and thanks Mm. personally for you know how much she loved primary school you know and that her obvious love of learning was really derailed by this experience and it's something that she still seems to have like a degree of ambivalence about that she didn't go to uni Mm. and that this book is kind of like a way of showing her learning in a way Mm -hmm. and showing her reading and showing her interests and stuff and that yeah I think that's another thing it does really well she's such a kid (laughs) like (laughs) you know and you see that in the pictures as well yeah them just just kind of playing on the beach and you know she's really really young yeah because I think it just you know there was the Bettina Arndt uh, mm. article where she is kind of framed as this like sexually precocious person, and I think she does a really good, which is just a kind of horrific thing. But she does, well, a she really does good an job. interview with her teacher. Yeah, that was just yeah, yeah framed it in yeah in that way of her being sexually precocious and yeah. that you know girls need to think more about how they dress and behave in front of their teachers and yeah that there's like a scurrilous collection of young lolitas out there yeah. driving middle-aged men 
balmy with their sexually precocious carry on and and these, these poor men who are just helpless to exactly, their charms. Like, you know, like, what, could, what could they possibly do in the face of all that sexy youth and beauty or something <laughs> like that? Like, it's really repugnant. And um, she does such a good... She never kind of says that that's what she's doing, and I don't think it was necessarily her intention to do it, but you just get the impression of just how young she was mm. and just so childlike, mm. I think, as well. Yeah. She um, mentions Bettina Arndt in here, like, once, yeah, I think. Yeah, I don't even know if she does it by name. Like, oh, no, she, she does. She does, she yeah, does she use does, her name? Yeah. Yep. But that was another one where I was just like, eh, context, people Yeah, that's true. I don't un- think she necessarily... Understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, there is lots of... There's also a context about she seems to have had some falling out with the woman who nominated her for Australian oh, of the Year. Oh, that's right, yeah. I don't know who that was and no. it's not explained. And yeah. I found that a little bit confusing. So. Yeah. Well, shall we talk about... I haven't read anything else okay. this month. I'm suffering from scrolling through my phone again uh, i've so seen I'm, there i need to go back and listen to our book slump episode again i think but sure <laughs> <laughs> i have been reading some things i haven't been reading as many things as i'd hope to be reading <laughs> but i've read some things Excellent. so i actually read a few things that i think would be really good for book clubs or for people to read in tandem with mates so the first thing i read was a memoir by jesse cole called Desire. So Jessie Cole was an Australian novelist. I realised I had kind of mentioned her in a previous podcast without reading her work. So there was a part of me, this niggling voice in my head that's like, maybe you didn't represent her. (laughs) And so this is a memoir that came out, I think, kind of halfway through last year. It's about her relationship. Essentially, it's like why she is attracted to a specific type of man, like a really deep interrogation of why she is attracted to emotionally unavailable or distant men, told through the prism of like a four-year relationship. Um, What's it called? It's called Desire. Oh, I think I've heard of this. Yeah, Yeah, it's really interesting. It's sort of, but it's kind of more than that. So she writes a lot about her body's response to desire and trauma. So she was, you know, a young mum that had traumatic births and then a kind of relationship with her kid's father that felt sexually not great so she really kind of thinks through her past relationships and now you know as a result of that sometimes even if she's really into somebody if they go to kiss her she like jumps a mile and so she talks to other women who've had kind of similar responses and trying to figure out um i guess the relationship between your body Mm. and its physiology and biology and your desires like what your brain is telling you and trying to marry them all up but she also talks about so kind of the effects of ongoing grief like her father committed suicide when she was in her late teens which came about five or six years after her sister committed suicide oh my gosh so she sort of talks about the impact of her father's death on her relationships with men so it's like a really like deep interrogation of yeah like female kind of desires female experiences with men but it's also kind of shot through like she lives in a forest in New South Wales with her mum and her two grown-up children and it's sort of about the impact of climate change on where they live too. So there's these floods and fires going on. So there's this sense of like everything being unstable Mm. all of the time, Mm. like this relationship that's maybe a relationship, maybe not, this home that's maybe safe, maybe not, these kids that are kind of no longer kids but are leaving and then they're coming back. and then Yeah, so it sort of has this feeling of like how you live with uncertainty mm. and, and stuff. So it's an interesting one. It's very – she's very open and emotionally raw. There are times, though, you 
like you feel like she's a mate and you're at the pub and you're just like just break up with him (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's an interesting one sounds like good writing then yeah yeah yeah, the writing's really good I think it makes it really stick with you when she's you know she she knows she's doing all sorts of mad things Mm. and you're like why are you doing the mad Mm. thing and that's what she's trying to understand why Mm. am I doing this mad thing so another one I read was The Trees by Percival Everett this was nominated for the booker last year but I am slow on the uptake and it was recommended by Annie from Mostly Books who comes along to lots of our library events so I wanted to read it. The blurb is, Something strange is afoot in Money, Mississippi. A series of brutal murders are eerily linked by the presence at each crime of a second dead body. That of a man who resembles Emmett Till, a young black boy lynched in the same town 65 years before. So this is essentially like a, a kind of interrogation of lynchings in America, but told in a really kind of unusual way. So it's instead of being like a historical novel, it's told through the format of like a crime novel, but kind of like an anti-crime novel because the crimes are so unusual that all the cops do is just kind of wander around going, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) And then they call each other, do you know what's going on? No, I don't know what's going on. And so it's kind of like an anti-crime novel. They can't figure out what's going on. The, you know, bodies keep disappearing. Um, So it's a really... It's a really strange novel. It's hard to talk about without giving any more away. It's also kind of like a really black comedy, so which sounds like like an incredible, incredibly strange mix for something that's about lynchings. You know, there's like a the Reverend Cad Fondle is one of the names of the characters. It's a so he's one of the white characters who is murdered. It's a very strange interesting book that would be amazing to talk about so Mm. if you read it maybe try and rope a friend into reading it with you which I'm currently trying to do (laughs) so that you can talk about it I think especially in light of some of the stuff that's happened in America in the last week even Mm, yeah it's an interesting book of trying to reckon with America's very violent history and yeah I don't know why it's reminding me of Get Out for some reason I think there is that kind of element of like black culture kind of leaning on elements of horror or genre to kind of Mm. retell stories so this sort of slightly non-realist slightly fabulous you know I know there are traditions of like radical black sci-fi this isn't one of those examples but I think it would be interesting to do like a bit of kind of more research on that like Mm. I know even contemporary stuff there's been some indigenous writing that draws on speculative fiction into it to try and talk about climate crisis Mm. so yeah, I think it's a it's kind of an example of using a kind of anti-crime novel and a kind of strange farce to kind of okay. retell a story that I think if it was told as a historical kind of novel would probably win lots of awards and would be considered quite worthy. But the using of like these particular tropes to make you, I think it makes you uncomfortable. I think the point mm. of it is to make you really, really uncomfortable with the story that's being told. Mm. But... Yeah, if anyone else has read it and wants to like. Uh, but it did win the booker, did you say? No, it didn't. Oh. It was nominated. It was nominated. It okay, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if anyone has read it and wants to come up to the library for a chat, <laughs> I'm still Andrea's figuring game. out what I think about it. So come and let me know what you reckon. <laughs> the other thing I've started reading, one of the things I want to do this year is read more graphic novels. Yes. Um, it's one of the many things I want to do this year. But so far, this is the only thing I've done that I want to do. So it's called To Know You're Alive. It's by Dakota McFadzine. It's a collection of short stories all to do with kind of childhood, anxiety, 
this kind of unnerving experiences of being a child. So far, as a parent, it's really creepy to read. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> much a, all the protagonists are children. Uh, um, is it a teen graphic novel or adult? I think it's ambiguous. I think okay. it's, we've catalogued it as adult. Okay. But I think it could probably go either way. Mm. But yeah, there's a kind of horror feel, to, more like a psychological horror in mm. them. There's lots of these really distressingly pink. I'm showing Paula, obviously. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Not the perils of talking about graphic novels <laughs> on a podcast. On a podcast. <laughs> but yeah, so far it's really unnerving and I'm really enjoying it. Okay. I think. Mm. And one last thing. I've talked about wanting to read Jeff Dyer's nonfiction a little bit more. He writes lots about art and travel. So far I'm still in the holds queue for all of those books. <laughs> so if you do have the Jeff Dyer books and you're listening to this, please return, return them. It. <laughs> I've been on hold for ages. <laughs> this is his first novel. It's called The Search. It's sort of like an anti-noir western about a woman getting a man to track down her missing husband so that she can secure his fortune if the organised crime forces that are trying to track him down kill him. She just wants to be make sure that she will protect the family wealth course that's not at all what it's about and it gets progressively weirder and stranger <laughs> from there i feel like a lot of your books that's are really weird good. yeah i feel like yeah 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 i think that's a fair call at the moment. but it's really good it's really good i think anyone who likes maybe like the crime of jim thompson that kind of noirish crime would really like this um yeah it's really good. nice so now andrea's gonna talk about some literary news yeah so we have some interesting new releases coming out in feb so one of the ones that I thought sounded really good is by Bridget Delaney, who writes for The Guardian. But she's bringing out a, a sort of quite a memoir, a book called Wellmania, Misadventures in the Search for Wellness. So this has been the inspiration for a Netflix series starring Celeste Barber, and it's an exploration of wellness culture. So she's travelled all around the world. She's done meditation, silent retreats, group psychotherapy, yoga, and just kind of talking about what's worked for her and what doesn't work for her and what this kind of explosion of wellness might be driven by. Mm. So her stuff in The Guardian has been really funny. She just kind of often writes, I think she alternates between life at home in the countryside, kind of riding her bicycle around because she refuses <laughs> to get her licence and, and wellness. So I think that sounds really interesting. So that's coming out from Black Ink in Feb. Oh, um, I, I feel like I need that one. Yeah, it sounds really good. <laughs> There's a couple. This book caught my eye. It's called Hungry Ghosts. It's by Kevin Jarrett Hussain. It's coming out from HarperCollins. And it caught my eye because it's getting rave reviews from people like the late Hilary Mantel, mm. really big this up, Bernadine Evaristo. Oh. Evie Wilde called it the biggest, most frightening, beautiful and alive novel I've read in as long as I can remember. Mm. So it's set in Trinidad in the 1940s. It's nearing the end of the American occupation and British colonialism and a wealthy landowner goes missing um afterwards a young man from a poor background moves into the farm to work as a watchman and protect this landowner's wife and from therein the relationship between the landowner and this sort of poorer community that lived down the hill the kind of historical enmeshings and relationships between them all sort of come out but it's a little bit vague but the reviews are just amazing okay. so yeah that sounds sounds really good mm. um the other Australian one that's getting lots of reviews also sounds a little bit vague in its description, but it's called Shirley. It's by Ronnie Scott. It's published by Penguin Random House. It's set in Melbourne in the kind of weeks at the end of Black Summer and before the lockdowns. And it follows kind of a young woman in her 30s. She's just bought a new flat. She's 
just broken up with her boyfriend. She's kind of isolated. She's becoming mildly obsessed with her new neighbour and kind of following her comings and goings. And she's reflecting on a strange incident in childhood where her mother was photographed kind of covered in blood and then sort of fled the country. And this is prompted by her mother wanting to sell the family home, which is called Shirley. Mm -hmm. So I don't know much else about it other Mm -hmm. than I like the idea of a woman in her house reminiscing and... I don't know, it sounds like she's going a little bit bonkers, but mm. I'm not quite sure. But it's gotten really good reviews and that would be out in February as well. Sounds good. Yeah. And if we have time for one more, mm-hmm. there's Irish author Sebastian Barry, who's, I think, much loved for his historical fiction. He's got a new one coming out called Old God's Time. It's about a retired policeman living on the coast of Ireland who's revisiting a traumatic case and reckoning with his past failings, personal and professional, which sounds like crime fiction but <laughs> apparently is a quite moving look at the way we're shaped by our history and by our choices so it's gotten really good reviews as well and that'll be out later this month oh, thanks for telling us about those andrea no worries <laughs> <laughs> okay well now we need to talk about some changes we're going to make to the podcast going sure. forward so this podcast has kind of been my baby since I started it five years ago when I thought, oh, the library needs to have a podcast. Yeah. And the very first episode was Car- a recording of Carrie Ann Kennedy with Allie Clark at the Marion Cultural Center Domain Theater. And then it's been in this format of choosing a book every month and before it was just Jane and me discussing it for about four years. And this is our 53rd episode. Oh, wow. Yeah, well not, in, not including author talks. That's fine. And I think we've talked a bit about there's been lots of staffing changes at our library and both Andrea and I have new roles now. So we're going to change it up again. And so we're still going to have an episode a month, but we are going to alternate between this current format of discussing or choosing a book and discussing it and a recorded author talk. So every other month you'll get one of those. And then Andrea is going to take over hosting duties. Very capable. (laughs) Well, we'll see. (laughs) It'll go horribly wrong and we'll quietly shutter up the podcast. No, no, no. Obviously, very, very capable. So every other month, Andrea is going to have a guest with her. And so that guest could be from our library. It could be someone from another library outside of our council. And it could be an author. That's so right. if yeah. you if you listen to the podcast and you think you maybe want to be on with Andrea, then get in touch and let us know. Yeah, the idea is hopefully to get just a range of new voices coming through. And I think for all of us who love books, hearing from a big range of people about the books they love, their thoughts on reading, hearing from some people in different library services about what they're interested in. It's just a good way to get to know, to find out make some new discoveries, find some new books, find some new authors, get some new perspectives and hopefully just kind of extend your literary community is the the idea. Yes. Or it will just be ranting about stuff. (laughs) Or a bit of both. There's a good chance it'll be a bit of both. (laughs) So we will be coming back to you next month with an author talk and at that time we'll let you know who's going to be joining Andrea and what book they're going to be talking about for the following month. So that's it for now. Hope you join us next month. Don't forget about summer reading challenge is still happening in Feb. Absolutely. And we've got some really good author talks coming up over the next little while as well. So please hop onto our Eventbrite page. And if you haven't booked yourself in already, please do. Book yourself a spot. Okay. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. (laughs) 
City of Marion acknowledges that the Literary Anything podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Garna people and recognizes the Garna people as the traditional custodians of the land. <laughs>